0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a non-partisan venue for dealing with critical issues. What makes us happy? Most people think happiness has four sources, the sensory pleasures, material wealth, romantic relationships, and children but recent research suggests much of what people think about happiness is wrong. The moderator of this discussion is Daniel Gilbert. He's a professor of psychology at Harvard and the author of Stumbling on Happiness. He leads a panel with psychologists Paul Bloom, Eli Finkel, and Tim Kasser, and journalist Jennifer Sr. They have written books with intriguing titles such as Just Babies, The Origins of Good and Evil, The High Price of Materialism, self and relationships, and all joy and no fun, the paradox of modern parenthood. Here's Daniel Gilbert to get things started.
1: If you look at our Constitution, it promises us three things. Life, guaranteed, liberty, guaranteed, but not happiness, just the pursuit of it. I was reminded last night uh, by a friend I had dinner with that Ben Franklin commented on this, and he said, I pulled up his quote, he said, the U.S. Constitution doesn't guarantee happiness only the pursuit of it. You have to catch up with it yourself. (laughs) Well, people do try to catch up with happiness. In fact, that's not a bad description of what most human lives are about. And all over the globe, when they're trying to catch up with happiness, they're doing it by catching up in four ways. First, they're seeking pleasure, from chocolate to sex, from opera to drugs and rock and roll, all forms of enchantment, are sources of pleasure. Most of us think that happiness comes in part from the pleasures of the senses and the pleasures of the mind. We're also seekers of material things. We're like all other animals, we need stuff to survive, but we pursue stuff and then pursue it with great ardor. Marriage, romantic relationships, almost everybody all over the world believes that happiness is in part due to a form of coupling with another human being. And then finally, children. What do we call them? Bundles of joy. They're named after happiness itself. These are the ingredients all over the globe for the, quote, happy life. What science has told us in the last 20 years or so, economists, psychologists, neuroscientists, sociologists, demographers, is that the picture is just a whole lot more complicated than that. The pursuing and then the catching, because it turns out that some of the things we're pursuing actually can't be caught. And some of the things we're catching, we shouldn't have been pursuing in the first place. That's what we're going to hear about today from four experts, each on one of the topics that I just articulated to you. Every minute I speak is a minute less that you can hear from them, and that would be a crime. Without further ado, let me introduce you to our first speaker, Paul Bloom. Professor of Psychology and Cognitive Sciences from Yale University. Uh, Many of you know him not only because he writes wonderful popular books like How Pleasure Works or uh, Just Babies, but also because he's, uh, we have scientists and journalists on our panel today. Paul is the only one who is both, so you also read his work, uh, for example, in The Atlantic where he writes articles like Is God an Accident? My friend, Paul Bloom. Um, I'd like
2: to thank you all for being here and thank the Aspen Ideas Festival for hosting us. Um, Thank my co-panelists, but particularly thank uh, Dan Gilbert for inviting me to this. Um, I want to talk about the pleasures of everyday life, and I want to present a certain, maybe surprising perspective on how to think about pleasure. Then I want to talk about a problem with pleasure, and it's a problem I have, and I bet just about everybody here has it too. Then I'm going to solve the problem, and I guarantee you, you will not like the solution. Hermann Gering was Hitler's second-in-command, his designated successor. And like his boss, Gehring fancied himself a collector of art. And he went through Europe during World War II, stealing, extorting, and sometimes buying various artwork for his uh, collection. And he amassed a huge collection, but what he really wanted was a Vermeer. Hitler had two. He didn't have any. He wanted one for himself. And finally, he got one from this Dutch art dealer, Han van Meegeren. bought a, a, a Vermeer for the equivalent of what now be $8 million, and it was his most prized possession. So the war comes to an end. He's tried at Nuremberg and sentenced to death for crimes against humanity. And soon, the Allied forces go through his collection and all the records, and they find out who sold him these different artworks. And so one day in Amsterdam, uh, they go knocking on Van Meegeren's door, and he's arrested. He's arrested for the crime of selling this great Dutch masterpiece to an occupying war criminal. And, um, and he spends about a few weeks in prison, and he can't take it anymore. And he demands to see the warden. And he says, I confess, I'm guilty. But I'm not guilty of the crime you're charging me with. I did not sell a Vermeer to, to this occupying Nazi. Rather, I'm a forger. I painted it myself. <laughs> and they didn't believe him. So he said, I'll prove it. Bring me paints and canvas into my cell, and I will paint another picture as good as I sold uh, Gearing. They bring him paint and canvas, and for a day, he does nothing. And he says, I can't work under these conditions. I need alcohol and morphine. <laughs> like me, it's the only way he could work. So, so he does this. He, cre- he creates this, this beautiful painting. The charges of treason are dropped. He gets charged with a lesser crime of, of uh, forgeries, and he, um, and he basically gets a, a sentence and dies before he uh, dies of a heart attack before he goes to prison a hero to the Dutch people, the man who swindled Gehring. Now, there's more to be said about him. He's an extraordinary character. But I want to move to Gehring. Gehring was, by all accounts, a horrible man. Um, his American interrogators described him as an amicable psychopath. But I find that I I, I can I get some sympathy for his situation at Nuremberg. He'd been sentenced to death. And his lawyer comes and says to him, essentially, Herman, I have some bad news for you. And he said, this thing you bought that you thought was a Vermeer is actually a forgery. Um, according to his biographer, he looked as if for the first time he saw there was evil in the world. <laughs> it wasn't just him. Um, once Van Meegeren was on trial, he couldn't stop boasting. And it turned out that many of the paintings that the Dutch people were thought were the great Vermeers were actually Van Meegren's. Um, at that point, when this was discovered, the value of this painting dropped. So, as a psychologist, this fascinates me. Our obsession with the history of things and the pleasure we get from them. Our obsession with the hidden essence of things um, and how we perceive them. And it turns out that this is not special to art. It, it, It happens with even the most fundamental sensory pleasures. So take who you find attractive. One of the nicest findings in psychology is the more you like a person, the better they look to you. This explains a mystery, which is why couples in good relationships each find their partner so much better looking than anyone else in the world finds them. (laughs) Because it's not like you think, oh, my husband looks like a toad, but I love him very much. Rather, if you love him very much, he no longer looks like a toad. Um, This is an old insight. Shakespeare once put it. uh, Love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind. Then there's food. How do you make children? think carrots and milk taste better. Not just make them more willing to to take it, but that they taste better. Simple, remove them from a McDonald's bag. They associate McDonald's with good taste, and then it tastes better. How do you make adults think that orange juice tastes better? Make it bright orange. How do you make ice cream taste better? Tell people it's full fat. How do you make wine taste better? Simple, pour it from an expensive bottle. This has a profound effect. It turns out that this is one of the few neuroscience studies I really love. They got people into a magnet, and they have a tube in their mouth, and they're sipping wine while their brains are being scanned. In front of them is a screen describing the wine. They all drink the same wine, but half are told it's the cheap stuff, and half are told it's the expensive stuff. As expected, this influences how they rate the wine, but it also seems to really affect areas of the brain devoted to sensory pleasure. When they think they're they're drinking the cheap stuff, these areas lie dormant, but when they think they're drinking expensive stuff, they light up like a Christmas tree. So all of these are examples of how our beliefs about the history of something influence the value that we give to it. And you could bring this back to art, where there's a world of difference between something being an original and something being a forgery, and that aspect of history influences how much you like it. Or to take another example, how much you like that artwork is influenced by how difficult and complex you think it is to to make it. Your beliefs about the history, the historical facts that go into its production, influence the, the pleasure you get from it. Um, and there's all sorts of examples of this. My favorite example is the modernist composition by John Cage, 4 minutes and 33 seconds, where uh, th- th- some of you may notice you got, uh, somebody goes up, sits down on a bench, opens up the piano, and there's total silence for 4 minutes and 33 seconds. People might differ as to what you think of that. What I just want to point out is you can buy this from iTunes. <laughs> That is, for a small sum of money, you can purchase those moments of silence, distinguished from plain old silence you get for free, by its history. So so I'm putting forth a certain perspective on pleasure, in which your, your beliefs about something, its history, influences the pleasure you get from something. Now I want to get to a problem. I have on my study a computer with an internet connection through which, like everyone else here, I can watch just about any movie I can think of any television show. I could play any composition or or, or opera or song I could imagine. On my computer and also on my tablet and on my iPhone, I could read just about any book I could think about. If my 12-year-old self knew that as an adult, he would have this immense bounty of possible pleasures, he would say, boy, as an adult, I'm going to be very happy indeed. But I'm not. I, 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 I spent, with this bounty of pleasures, I often sit up late at night, stare at my computer, drink whiskey, and Google myself. I mean, I don't... So, so, you, so you might be thinking, that's a really strange character up here, but it's not just me. In other words, why aren't we happier with, with, the, with, with these pleasures of which we have an enormous amount of choice and very little effort? And I think the answer is that We have an enormous amount of choice with very little effort. Many psychologists have found, Dan Gilbert including, um, that that the more choices we have, the less pleasure we get from what we ultimately decide, often because we're fraught with regret. Psychologists have found that the harder you work for a pleasure, the more you enjoy it. This is true for both intangible pleasures, but also things you create, some work that's now called the IKEA effect. Uh, reflecting the fact that the furniture you build by yourself is so much better than the furniture you might, you might buy from someplace else. So what's the solution to this problem? Well, one thing is you could take away these easy pleasures. Remove your computer, buy, buy records, buy physical books, don't go online. Remove the ease of the pleasure. You could also remove the choice. Consult an oracle. Let somebody else choose, choose for you. These are both examples of what philosophers and theologians have described as self-binding, acting now to restrain your choices and your access in the future. Um, The classic illustration of self-binding is Ulysses, who asked his his sailors working under him to bind him to the mast so he could enjoy the song of the sirens without wading into the water. Thing is, self-binding is difficult. It requires self-control, planning, intelligence, and hard work, and very few of us are going to do it. this problem that we suffer from and the possible solutions, um, I think, are one consequence of an important insight of pleasure. A pleasure, which, 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 uh, an insight which has been pointed out by many people, um, I, it has a, my favorite articulation, is from John Milton, who put it in, in the words, who had Satan express this. The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. Thank you.
1: Pleasure may be a mystery, but hearing Paul talk is always a pleasure. Um, What next? Well, like every animal, we need stuff to survive. That's what animals do. They gather the things they need, from food to nesting materials. What makes this animal unique is we're the only animal that continues to gather more material even when we have all we need. You do it. I do it. And as we're doing it, as we're pursuing stuff in our lives, in the back of our minds, we're thinking, why exactly am I doing this? Tim Kasser is the psychologist in the United States who has moved that question from the back of the mind to the front of the mind. He studies why people deny climate change. He studies the commercialization of children, but he also studies consumerism. And he is the author of The High Price of Materialism. The point of the book is... I'm going to let Tim tell you.
3: Hi, uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here, great to see so many of you here today. So uh, I'm going to talk about happiness and the goods life today. And note that you know in America, we are continually bombarded with all kinds of different messages so telling us that the way to happiness is through our possessions. So we get all of these uh, messages about what the good's life is, that the good life is the good's life, and we're told that we can purchase happiness. Happiness is for sale on the internet, at the mall, in just about any place today, and that um, we're a successful people and we'll have meaningful lives if we get this money and we get these possessions and the right image, which is almost always mediated through our possessions. So the thing I've been interested in over the last 20 years is whether or not these messages are true, okay? What happens when we do take on these materialistic messages? What happens when we do believe uh, these ideals of consumer capitalism? And what our research has been showing is that there are personal, social, and ecological costs associated with these beliefs. Um, Before I turn to that research, I just want to be clear how it is that most psychologists set about studying materialism and measuring materialism. There's lots of ways to measure materialism, but the most prominent ways, um, one of them comes from work that my colleagues and I have developed, a value strategy, where what we do is we ask people about the importance of a wide variety of goals, spirituality and family and hedonism and pleasure, um, and in addition, some materialistic values, and we see how important these kinds of materialistic values are in comparison to these other non-materialistic values. So let's start with the well-being correlates of materialism. This is where my research started uh, more than 20 years ago now, and um, what people have uh, found since the research that we uh, conducted and others conducted in the early 1990s is that over and over, We find a negative association between the extent to which people endorse these materialistic values to the extent that they believe that happiness comes from money and possessions and their personal well-being. So as materialism goes up, their personal well-being goes down. Uh, Last year I was involved in a meta-analysis. If you don't know what a meta-analysis is, it's a very powerful statistical technique whereby you take a whole bunch of different individual studies and you average them together to get a sense of whether or not the finding of any one study replicates across lots of other different studies. In this particular uh, meta-analysis, we had over 258 samples, or we had 258 samples, with over 51,000 people in them across those samples, where there was a measure of materialism and a measure of well-being. It was a fairly diverse sample, and what we found was that there was a consistent negative association between the extent to which people pursued these material values and their well-being. So one of the strongest findings was that the more that people um, pursued materialistic values, the fewer pleasant emotions they experienced, okay? The less they experienced joy, the less they experienced contentment. Their overall well-being was worse. They had lower self-esteem. They actually had lower physical health as well, okay? More stomach aches, back aches, headaches, things like that, and lower overall life satisfaction. At the same time, the more the people were materialistic, the higher they were in compulsive consumption. They couldn't stop buying stuff, and as a result, uh, acquired more debt oftentimes. They had more health risk behaviors like smoking cigarettes and uh, drinking alcohol, more of a negative self-concept, said more negative things about themselves, more depression and anxiety, and more experience of unpleasant emotions like anger, anxiety, etc. We looked at people in 15 different nations around the world and we used this fancy statistical technique called circular stochastic modeling. What this technique does is it takes all of the values and it puts them along the circumference of a circle. Values which are next to each other are values which people experience as relatively easy to simultaneously pursue. Values on the opposite side of the circle are values where there's a tension, where it's difficult to do them both at the same time because they're in conflict. First, one of the things we found was that when people said a value like image and financial success or financial success was important, they would view them both as important. Image is associated with both popularity and financial success. Makes sense, right? When I care about my image, why? So I can be popular. What does it take to get an image? Well, it usually takes money. So perfect opposition between two values would be represented by 180 degrees of opposition, right? Financial success and community feeling were 193 degrees opposed in our analyses. It's difficult to simultaneously be greedy and generous. (laughs) And this, to me, is the key for why materialism is not so hot for our well-being. Because it's like a seesaw. As those materialistic values go up, we have less space in our life to pursue our own personal growth, to pursue our relationships with others, to pursue contributing to the larger community. And these are the values which our research shows are the ones that satisfy our psychological needs and make us happy. So by focusing around materialistic values, what we're doing is we're orienting our lives in ways which undermine our ability to focus on the values which really will make us happy. Now, we know from the research that when people endorse these materialistic values, they endorse more Machiavellian attitudes. They're more willing to manipulate other people in order for their own gain. They're less concerned with corporate social responsibility, for example. They have less pro social behaviors like helping and sharing, more antisocial behaviors like cheating and stealing. And even when they play something called the prisoner's dilemma game with their friends, and they could earn points by either cooperating or competing, more materialistic people choose to compete rather than to cooperate, which may be good for them, but not so good for their friends. Now, if our materialistic values lead us to treat other people not so well, it's not too big of a jump to then think about how our materialistic values lead us to treat other species and the Earth. It's in our desire for more and more stuff that we're pumping noxious uh, gases into the water and into the atmosphere, that we're using up uh, habitat in order to have more malls and subdivisions. And indeed, the research shows uh, in another much smaller meta-analysis that the more that people are focused on materialism, the worse their ecological attitudes, they tend to just care less about other species and about the earth, and the worse their ecological behaviors, they have higher ecological footprints, engage in fewer positive ecological behaviors and more damaging ecological behaviors. Why? Well, for me, it's pretty much the same explanation here. If we go back to the circumplex model, what happens is, is that our materialistic values crowd out the community feeling values. They crowd out the values that our research knows or shows are the ones that lead us to treat others in a more equal and positive way, as well as values that lead us to uh, care about the planet and the species that inhabit it. I thank you for your attention.
1: When you ask people what it takes to be happy, one of the highest-ranked, often number one things, is love, they say. And by that, they mean romantic love, some kind of enduring bond with another partner. Now, you would expect psychologists to just know a hell of a lot about this, given that it's basically the most important thing to most human beings, and they don't. And the reason they don't is psychologists are very good at studying extremely simple things that you can look at in a laboratory. It's very hard to study love and the kinds of relationships it produces. but. Someone named Eli Finkel in the last 15 years, a professor at Northwestern University, has been defying those odds and producing an astounding body of beautiful science on the nature of romantic relationships and particularly marriage. His forthcoming book, The All or Nothing Marriage, which sounds like it might have been written by Dr. Phil, but is in fact a wonderful deep intellectual history of the institution of marriage, is a book you're gonna wanna buy. We're gonna hear from Eli right now. Thank you. Um,
4: Thank you, Dan, very much. Uh, Thank you to everybody involved in the Institute and for that overly kind introduction. So uh, the talk today is the all or nothing marriage or the subtitle, why the best marriages today are flourishing like never before and how the rest of us can share in the bliss. And as Dan said, I'm a psychologist, this is gonna be a psychological assessment of marriage in America today, but to do that well, we need to adopt an historical perspective on these things. And when I start thinking about the history of how we think about marriage, one of my favorite places to start is with George Bernard Shaw, who in his preface, to his uh, play, Becoming Married, he says the following. You might be familiar with this. When two people are under the influence of the most violent, most insane, most elusive, and most transient of passions, they are required to swear that they will remain in that excited, abnormal, and exhausting condition continuously until death do them part. (laughs) That is funny. That's funny. I love it, you love it, and the reason why it's funny is because we know that we tend to wait passionate love very highly when making marital decisions. Marital decisions tend to be things that we at least intend to be in perpetuity, and yet romantic passion tends to be fairly fickle. But I actually am bringing up this quote today for a different purpose, which is, as the historian Stephanie Kuntz tells us, for thousands of years this joke would have fallen flat. And the reason why this joke would have fallen flat is because nobody ever thought that romantic love was a good idea, a good basis for marriage, right? That's something that's really quite modern. We, in our main discussions in our culture about marriage, like for example, marriage in America, we tend to think of the foundation as the 1950s. But the truth is, the 1950s was a highly anomalous uh, era in a lot of different ways, but particularly regarding marriage. Basically, what we're looking at is, is a a very brief eye-blink of historical time, and we're calling that the way we always were, right? But it wasn't. It wasn't the way we always were. And in fact, what I want to do today is map the way historians of the family think about the trajectory of marriage in our country, in America, and then I want to tie it together and talk about how this all relates to the psychology of marriage today. So... According to the historians, they tell us that there are basically three different eras that we've been through, and this goes back to the very beginning, right? So back to the 1600s, we can think about the arrival at Plymouth Rock, Um, but but we don't need to start all the way back there, but pretty much from that spot up until uh, industrialization really takes off around 1850, you, you live a life that is... That is pretty hard to recognize. It's pretty hard for us to, to do the mental time travel required from the 21st century to think about what life was like. When we think about work and economic production, we think about like going somewhere and maybe earning a wage and coming back and using that money to buy something. Uh, so we, we tend to think in a certain way about how economic production works. But the unit of economic production throughout the colonial era and really until about 1850 was the individual farmhouse. And in this individual farmhouse, the husband and the wife were crucial economic producers. The idea that, that she sort of tended to the home while he earned his economic, you know, earned his earned the, earned the money for the household is a new idea. That idea didn't exist when the farmhouse was the unit of economic production. Somebody was out uh, collecting food, somebody was out hunting, somebody was tending to the vegetable garden, somebody was sewing the, the clothing, right, because there was no place to go out and buy clothing, right? And so both of them were huge contributors at a time when there was no social safety net, there was no education system, right? There was these institutions didn't exist. They happened in the family. Now, let's fast forward a little bit. Now we come to an era where industrialization starts to kick off and things start to change. And in the amorous marriage, the second type of marriage, the central factor that matters is love. We marry because we want companionship, because we want intimacy, because we want passion. And for the first time in human history, the definition or benchmark for success of a marriage is personal fulfillment. Personal, emotional, and psychological fulfillment. That's a new idea. So a a French nobleman, many of you will know him as uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, um, Democracy in America, He advanced this idea that Americans were generating a brand new model, a brand new approach to marriage that he called the democratic marriage. Now, it's not democratic in the infinite sense that we might wish it were, but basically instead of a patriarchal hierarchical system where the man is the ultimate monarch of his little commonwealth and his wife is his subject, which is really the way things were in the 1600s and 1700s, now they have separate spheres of influence. The man is high in what we might call agency, so he's very oriented toward commerce and law, toward the external world, if you will. The woman, the the wife, is more oriented toward what we might call communion, warmth, nurturance, the household, taking care of the children, moral piety, right? And each of them is the undisputed authority on those separate domains and those separate spheres. So what we end up with is we have this love-based marriage, and we've got these separate spheres. And then, as these things are emerging, The economic system changes in the most radical way that has ever existed. Industrialization happens. What happens once society industrializes? Society urbanizes. What happens once society urbanizes? People, young people, come from rural areas, but also from other countries, mainly from Europe during this era, and they settle in American cities. And this does something remarkable. For the first time in human history, large swaths of young people, are both economically and geographically independent from their parents and from their broader social network. And what does that allow them to do? It allows them to make their own marital decisions. And when they can make their own marital decisions and they live in the world where they value things like personal fulfillment and personal happiness and love, what decisions do they make? They marry for love. Right? Dan talked earlier about how sometimes we get exactly what we always wish for and we're left flat. That's what happened in America. We worked forever. For centuries, these ideas were coming together that we would have a love-based breadwinner-homemaker marriage, and this would be the ultimate source of happiness on Earth. Right? Turns out that we finally got there around 1950 for a bunch of reasons, not least of which is our economic, America's economic dominance in the wake of World War II left it so that there was huge amounts of wealth creation, that wealth was shared up and down the economic spectrum, so even working-class people for really the first time and the only time because this is not true anymore, We're able to support a family on the back of one single wage earner. What happens? Were, was this the end of marital history? Were we thrilled and settled into this? Well, no. Right? We know that this didn't last. Why didn't it last? Well, there's several reasons, but I want to talk about reasons why the ideal itself was flawed from the start. One major problem, several, people have already talked about the importance of social relationships. One of the major problems is this love-based breadwinner-homemaker marriage socially isolated the nuclear family. We used to live in small units. There wasn't a whole, whole lot of, of mobility. People didn't move all over the place. You were surrounded in your lifetime by your parents, your siblings, your friends, and so forth. But now you weren't. Now there's a new set of ideals. This was an extremely materialistic era. And what you see is that you make enough money that you move into the suburbs. And then you make a little more money, and you move to a different suburb. And then you make a little more money, and you move to yet a different suburb. And so what's the consequence of that? that we no longer live surrounded by our intimate social networks. What does that mean? The person who has to serve these huge numbers of social and emotional and psychological responsibilities for us is our spouse. We can't turn to our sister. We can't turn to our brother. We can't turn to mom. We can't turn to our cousin. We can't turn to our childhood friends because we don't live anywhere near them. Second issue, this one is inherent to the idea of separate spheres. We've built a love-based marriage, right? At the same time... We've planted men and women in separate spheres. How easy is it for men and women in the 1950s to understand what their husband or their wife was going through in a given day? Their lives were were fundamentally different. And not only were their lives fundamentally different, but they believed that the essential quality of men and woman is like different species, basically, totally different spheres. And so there's this divide that happens. Now, enter the 1960s the third era, which we could call the self-expressive era. Now, we're still in this era today, and in fact, it's gathering steam. In this era, we, of course, still care about love, but we also care about what you might call self-expression or self-actualization. The idea is there is a core essence within us. There is something unique and special within us, and if we can find out what that is, and then live in accord with that, that we can not only make ourselves happy and fulfilled, but fulfill the people around us, make the world a better place, and so forth. And we want our spouses to help us do that. So um, Robert Bellah and his colleagues talk about this idea that in expressive individualism, a relationship is created by full sharing of authentic feelings, and love becomes the mutual uh, exploration of infinitely rich, complex, and exciting selves. This would have gotten you laughed out of your colonial hamlet, And and certainly, is not the sort of individualism that we might have expected from Henry David Thoreau, but it is the modern version of individualism, and according to people like myself, this is a pretty valuable way of trying to pursue things. Here's the thing. If you are able to achieve a marriage that does these things, bully for you. You are probably able to achieve a level of fulfillment in your marriage that would have been unavailable to people who weren't even striving for such a high level of achievement in their marriage. Second, it's hard. Two people both doing that and facilitating that for each other, it is a challenging task. What does all that mean? It means that we are afforded today an opportunity to achieve a level of marital success, success, not excess, but maybe. a level of marital success that was largely unavailable in the past but that it's hard to do. And at minimum, what we should be willing to do if we really are looking for our marriages to do this is to spend the time and the emotional effort to try to understand what is it about my spouse? What is the core essence of my spouse? How is it that I can facilitate her development, get rid of the sometimes unconscious psychological roadblocks she confronts that prevents her from achieving her full potential? So what have we been doing? If we, tr- if we track The amount of time that people are spending with their spouses, are we, in fact, increasing the amount of time that we're putting into the marriage? Relative to 1980, spouses in 2000 were far less likely to eat their main meal of the day together, go out for leisure together, visit friends together, and so forth. So at a time when we are systematically looking for our marriage to do things that require serious time and attention and psychological investment, we seem to be investing less. What should we see? On average, we should see that marital quality is going down, and yes, it is. There has been, since the 70s, an 11% decline in the the percentage of Americans who say they're very happy in their marriage. What I really want to know is not is the average marriage struggling, because I think we understand, based on the information I presented, why that's the case. What we want to understand is, are there unique opportunities and affordances for us to achieve a level of marital quality that might have been unavailable before? If you listed yourself as very satisfied in your marriage relative to not very satisfied, how is your overall quality of life? And as Dan has told us, having a satisfying marriage is today and has long been an extremely important predictor of how happy we are in our life in general. That effect is twice as large today as it was in the 1970s. The degree to which having a good marriage links you up to a deeply fulfilling, happy life is twice as strong today as it was several decades ago. I don't believe in, in one-size-fits-all solutions, so I'm not going to give you the four secrets to a happy marriage. But what I would suggest is that you ask yourself three questions, anybody, if, if you're married or looking to marry. First question, what very specifically am I looking for my marriage to do for me, and am I looking to do for my spouse, and what expectations does she have, right? These are a lot of things. If you start listing them, you'll be a little shocked at how many things you're asking for. Two, in light of those things. What are the resources you're investing? Time, psychological energy, willingness to, to be, have sex when you may not feel like it. There's a bunch of different things that you might want to think of, resources you invest in the marriage. Are you investing enough to meet those needs? If so, bully for you, you're probably already at the top. But if not, you have two choices. Number one, start finding ways to increase the amount you're investing in the marriage so that you can get up to the expectations. Or number two, Alter your expectations in a way that brings them down to the resources that you're willing to invest. And if you're one of the people, many of us are, who have a discrepancy between what you'd like the marriage to be doing for you, what it's actually doing for you, I really encourage you to try to calibrate those things, because as we know, having a marriage that aligns in that way is likely to yield a great deal of deep satisfaction with both with your life and also for your spouse's life. Thank you very much.
1: I was enjoying that talk so much until at the point where Eli was talking about the impossibility of modern marriage, my wife was next to me going, yes, yes, (laughs) huh giving us all something to think about. Our final speaker today is Jen Senior. Jen is the only one among us who's not a scientist and therefore is probably the person most familiar to you. She's a contributing editor to New York Magazine, and you know her as the person who profiles Bill Clinton and Antonin Scalia. You know her as the person you see on Morning Joe and Hardball. But I know her because maybe a decade ago, she came to interview me about a book I had written on happiness. My experience with journalists is usually they come to me for an education. Jen already had an education. She came to me for a debate. It turns out that Jen is, in my personal opinion, the best social science writer in the United States. And her book, All Joy, No Fun, is a beautiful, beautiful short summary of the literature on children and happiness, and she's become, in my view, the world's expert on this topic. We're glad to have her. Please come up and join us.
5: Thank you for that ultra-menci introduction. Um, I'll I'll forgive you because you've also ruined my opening, because (laughs) here's how I was going to start, which was to say that 10 years ago... (laughs) When I was assigned one of my first social science stories for New York Magazine, um, I uh, I was doing my research for it. And along the way, I picked up a book by this Boston-based psychologist I had never heard of, Dan Gilbert. And it was a great book. And toward the end, it mentioned, almost in an extended kind of parenthetical, that one of the most robust findings in social science is that kids do not improve their parents' happiness one iota if anything they compromise it and when i read this i was stunned because of course all i wanted at that moment in time was a kid that was all i was thinking about and i would have written about this right then and there were it not for the fact that i was convinced there would be this enormous credibility gap between me and my readers if i wrote this as a non-parent so i had a kid And I decided it was time to look into this data. And um, sure enough, um, it is a very robust body of literature. It stretches back more than 50 years. Um, it started with this paper called Parenthood as Crisis. It was published in 1957, which, if you think about it, is kind of interesting because, of course, that was a moment of like, peak veneration of the, Amer- of the nuclear family in American life. Um, it was very audacious for the author to write it. He got a lot of blowback for it. He paid the consequences. Um, What he argued was that contrary to conventional wisdom, children did not actually strengthen marriages, but weakened them. And he doubled down on his argument on page one by quoting a representative mom, this is a woman who was in the study, who said, we knew where babies came from, but we didn't know what they were like. But uh, the most famous contemporary study that documents parental discontents was done by Daniel Kahneman. And uh, this is one crowd for whom I probably don't even need to tell you who he is, but just briefly, um, Princeton psychologist. He won a Nobel Prize for more or less uh, inventing the field of behavioral economics. Um, He and his colleagues did something very, very simple in 2004. They surveyed 909 working women from Texas and asked them to do two things. They had to, number one, please say what they did the day before, and number two, say how they were feeling as they were doing it. And lo and behold, at the end, when they had tallied all of the results, it turned out that child care care ranked 16 out of 19 in pleasurability, which no one expected. It became the unanticipated headline of the study. It overtook all the other findings. Um, So things that women said that they preferred, things that clocked in higher included um, vacuuming, (laughs) which is to say, um, housework clocked in higher. Also, napping, which is to say that losing consciousness entirely (laughs) was considered preferable to spending time with their children. Um, So what are we to make of these studies? Right, Of course, some things about children are going to be irreducibly difficult. You will not sleep for quite some time. That's true. You will find yourself trapped in absurdist loops of conversation and negotiation with small creatures whose prefrontal cortexes are about as ripe as a green banana. And that will be frustrating. And that will compromise your affect too. Of course, of course, of course, sure. On the other hand, we know that kids are great right? They're fabulous. I mean, they they are responsible for these unrivaled moments of joy that we have in our lives. They give you this vectored sense of purpose, this reason to get out of bed. By the way, parents are less likely to take their lives than non-parents. That matters. Um, They fill you with this wild and almost psychotic sense of love and pride, right? So here's what I'm going to stipulate. I'm going to stipulate that kids are not the problem. I'm going to stipulate that something about parenting right now at this moment is the problem. And that something about my parenthood has, uh, parenting has really, really changed. So for now, I'm just going to isolate three ways in which I think it's changed that might actually account for this kind of deeply counterintuitive data. I'm going to start with choice. Sounds very obvious, but I think it's worth fleshing out. So in Plymouth Colony, there were eight kids per family. In 1850, there were five. And today, there are only two. Just two. So imagine how much value we assign to these two kids, right? This is just the basic principle of economic scarcity speaking. We assign a higher value to those things that are rare. Now, in addition to having fewer children, we are also deferring having them, right? So today, if you are a college-educated woman, odds are you're going to have your first baby at 30.3 years old. and. If you are in a straight relationship, your spouse is going, or your partner, is going to be 32.3. So kids today are kind of the equivalent of what marriage was in a Jane Austen novel, right? They're the capstone to a life. They're this thing that you fantasize about, this glorious end goal that you're hurtling toward. So again, imagine how much significance you are attaching to this experience when you finally have it. So it could be that one of the reasons that the data says this is simply that, We expect an awful lot out of parenting right now. And maybe we expect too much, so that's one possibility. Okay, so the second change to parenting that I wanna talk about is um, we work differently, right? And I can talk forever. There are a million different ways that we work differently which are gonna have consequences for how we parent and how we experience parenthood. For now, I'm just gonna focus on one, and that's that women do it. Today, um, 4 in 10 mothers are either the primary or sole breadwinners in their homes. So let me just repeat that. 41% of us make most of, if not all of, the dough. And you would think, you would think, given how common this arrangement is, that our culture would be well-adjusted to it, you, you would think. And we, in fact, are not. We are deeply deeply ambivalent about it, and if you want a sense of just how neurotically contradictory our views are on this subject, I'm going to give you a pair of statistics from Pew that I think tell you all that you kind of need to know, okay? And they were done only one year apart, 2012 and 2013, so they're very recent. The first is that 79% of Americans reject the idea that women should return to their traditional roles. So, that's good, right? I mean, we should have options, terrific, great. Number two, this is one year later in 2013, 51% of Americans say that children are better off if a mother is at home and doesn't hold a job. So go ahead, reconcile these two numbers. You can't do it. On the one hand, women should have choices aplenty. On the other hand, if they exercise the right to use those options, then they are imperiling their children psychologically, right? So I think because these are unresolvable, This might actually explain why mothers in all of these studies, about 60 years worth, mothers almost always come out less happy than fathers. They are consumed, besieged by guilt. So what do they do to assuage it? Well, not only are we spending almost record hours at the office, today we are also spending record numbers of hours with our kids, in compensation. We are now at the point where we are spending more time with our kids than moms did in the 1960s, when most of them didn't work. And when I tell this to people, or outside the home, I should, it's work no matter what you're doing, but and w- when I tell this to people, they are often very skeptical. They can't understand how the ledgers could possibly add up. It makes no sense. But if you look at the American time-use survey data, it's very, very clear what's going on. So back in the 60s, you had to keep an impeccable home. Your floors had to be buffed to a high shine. There could be no more ring around the collar. You had to make scrumptious and perfect meals. But you put your kids in play pens. And if they were old enough to ride a bike, you told them to get on it and not to come home until six o'clock when you banged a gong and it was dinner time. And that was that. Right. So now cut to today. Well, this is what's clear. None of us can cook and our houses are filthy. But we're all going to work and we're all spending a ton of time with our kids. Right now, I would say that uh, <clears throat> we are all in the business of, of, intensis, of intensive mothering. We are spending more time with our kids than we ever had. We are also still doing, this is moms, we are still doing twice as much childcare as fathers. Now, this would not necessarily be a problem per se, because men still do more paid work than women do. So, theoretically, again, the ledgers should look even. The problem is that the type of childcare that we do as women is very, very different. And so we experience our time differently, which again, I think explains mom's distress in these studies. So first of all, moms, even in dual earner families, get up three times as much in the middle of the night with their kids. That's in dual learner families. It's six times if they don't. don't. And I don't feel like I have to rehearse the literature of sleep deprivation here to tell you that that is a mental health disaster waiting to happen, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is that um, we have deadline-centered work, right, we're doing things on deadline. The bath has to be run at uh, six o'clock and the homework has to be done by eight o'clock and they've got to eat dinner. So home is not a haven for women. It's just another place where the shot clock is running, right? And then the third thing is is that women in general um, multitask more than men about 10 extra hours a week, and almost all of that multitasking is done in the home. So again, what that means is that home is not a haven. It's a place of keen discombobulation and time fragmentation. So I think this might explain why leisure time, if moms can somehow miraculously manage to locate some while they're at home, does nothing to bring their cortisol levels down. And I mean nothing, it has no effect. It does for men, it does not for women. But I don't know if anyone here wants to take a guess about what does bring women's cortisol levels down because people at UCLA have been looking at this, they've been getting people to spit into vials and testing their cortisol levels, and they can tell you what makes women relax when they are at home. Seeing their husbands do chores around the house. (laughs) Um, One quick caveat on this, it was a small sample size, it has not been duplicated. I look forward to the day that it's done in triplicate with thousands of people, but it was too good not to share. So take it, you know, not with one grain of salt, but you know, it's, it's not yet there. Okay, so anyway, all right. So the fact that we have uh, you know a lot of choice, the fact that we work differently, those are, those are two big changes that I think we're all contending with. The third, and it's sort of um, neglected uh, it, as, an, as an explanation, but I think it's really important, um, and I'll be brief, the role of the child has really changed. Once upon a time, children worked, right? I mean, they worked on our farms. They worked in factories. They worked in mills. They worked in mines. They worked in the street trade. Kids were economic assets to their families. It was only during the progressive era that we finally put an end to child labor. But even in 1940, 1940, I mean, that's not that long ago, half of all teenage boys dropped out of school. They went to work. So really, it was only after World War II that the kind of sheltered, education-focused childhood as we know it came into existence. Once kids stopped working, they were no longer contributing to the family till. Instead, they were taking from it. And throughout the 1950s and 60s, that was okay. It worked. Because income inequality was at record lows in the United States, but by the 70s, wages were stagnating. By the 90s, The world was globalizing, and pretty soon, it wasn't enough just to shelter and educate our kids. Suddenly, we had to raise a species of super child just to make sure that our kids had a toehold in the shrinking middle class. So the irony is, today, kids are working again. The difference is, today's soccer practice is their new work. Uh, Violin lessons, that's their new work. College calc in 10th grade, that's their new work. And I don't know, maybe it benefits them I know though that it does not benefit the family the way that it did in the days of old. It costs the family, it uh, it tires the family, it drains the family. Who's driving them to the soccer practice? Who's paying for the violin lessons, and let's face it, probably doing it with them because it's Suzuki? We are, right, it's us. So I just wanna point out that as a historical proposition, this is brand new, there is nothing reciprocal about our relationship with our children anymore. And in a very short period of time, Kids have gone from being our employees to being our bosses.
0: That was Paul Bloom, Daniel Gilbert, Eli Finkel, Tim Kasser, and Jennifer Sr. Recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival on July 2, 2015. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more about the festival at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow the festival at Aspen Ideas on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.